Hi there, Spence here with Chapter 4 of the Oxford Audio Tour. Welcome back. As ever, you can find loads of extra information about Oxford, including a wonderful map of this audio tour, at the new website, oxfordaudiotour.com. Without further ado, here is Chapter 4, Radcliffe Square. If you take a moment to search Oxford in Google Images, 15 of the first 16 results all focus on the same small area of the city centre. It's hard to imagine that Broad Street, the University Parks, the Bodleian Library, Sheldonian Theatre and even the Bridge of Sighs do not feature at all. Such is the beauty and character of Radcliffe Square that few of the city's other majestic landmarks come close to matching its popularity among students, locals and visitors alike. The name Radcliffe is one that you will find all over Oxford. The John Radcliffe Hospital, the Radcliffe Science Library, the Radcliffe Observatory, the Radcliffe Infirmary, and of course, the Radcliffe Square, home to the Radcliffe Camera. All of these and more are named after John Radcliffe, a medical student at Oxford in the late 17th century and later royal physician to King William III. He was as successful as he was popular and enjoyed a long and distinguished career. He was famous for reading very little and partying very much and it was his colourful character that later got the better of him. The story goes that he was at a party in Covent Garden in central London when the palace called for him, explaining that the Queen required his urgent attention. He refused the request, explaining that the Queen could wait until morning. This was shortly after he'd offended King William. While inspecting the King for suspected gout, Radcliffe remarked, Why truly, I would not take your Majesty's two legs if they came with your three kingdoms. Radcliffe's time as a royal physician came to a rather abrupt halt, though not before he had amassed a huge fortune, an art collection featuring works of Rubens, Rembrandt and Vermeer, and a portfolio of stocks, shares and property worth many millions of pounds today. When he died, he left his fortune to charitable causes, including a new infirmary in Oxford. Every corner of Radcliffe Square features something beautiful and historic. The old Bodleian Library sits to the north, All Souls College to the east, the University Church of St Mary the Virgin to the south, and Brasenose College to the west. The focal point is of course the famous Radcliffe Camera, the stunning landmark which is very much the de facto poster child of the city and university. Designed by Scottish architect James Gibbs, this imposing cylindrical masterpiece is often presumed by many to be some sort of centrepiece for both the city and University of Oxford. Surely something very important and impressive is happening within those gorgeous stone walls. Visitors to Oxford often mistake the Radcliffe camera, or Radcam, for having some special purpose. I've even been asked on several occasions whether the camera is home to the university's photography department, or something along those lines. Unsurprisingly, it is not. Firstly, the university does not have a photography department. Second, the word camera comes from the Latin translation for chamber. The Radcliffe camera is actually just another library. Opened in 1749, the building was known as the Radcliffe Science Library, but by 1860, the library was in danger of being swallowed up by its bigger brother. As you'll know if you listen to the previous chapter, the Radcliffe camera sits in the shadow of the old Bodleian Library, which is the oldest and most famous of the university's libraries. It is a legal deposit library, which means that it is entitled to one free copy of every book and periodical published in the United Kingdom though it is obliged to preserve that material and ensure its availability to future scholars. The old bod, as it's known in the city, has held this status since 1610, so you will not be at all surprised to hear that the collection of the library is not only very large, but very fast-growing. 
it is said to be collecting books at such a rate that they require around three miles of new shelves every year. The library required more and more space, and in 1860, the Radcliffe camera became an extension of the wider library. Though it is not immediately obvious, the camera is connected to the Bodleian by a series of underground basements and tunnels. Construction of a two-storey basement beneath the north garden of the camera began in 1911, along with a tunnel to the older library, which was known as the Radcliffe Link, or the Radda. This network was redeveloped and extended in 2011, and since then has been known as the Gladstone Link. So, the Radcliffe camera doesn't have quite as interesting a purpose as you might first have thought. It does, however, tie nicely into a fascinating theory about the preservation of Oxford throughout the Second World War. Throughout that war, just about every major town and city in the south of England was being targeted pretty regularly by German bombers. Fortunately for the residents of Oxford, over the course of the war not a single bomb was dropped on the city. Delighted though they no doubt were, the residents were also very surprised that the city had been spared, as a bombing raid on Oxford had been considered inevitable for a number of reasons. Firstly, Oxford is a beautiful old city, and its destruction would surely have had a significant negative impact on the morale of the British people. Of course, the city is home to one of the most renowned academic institutions in the history of mankind, a beacon of knowledge, thought and research which was so vital to the Allied war effort. Another interesting point is that just a couple of kilometres to the southeast of the city centre sits an enormous factory. Throughout the 1930s and 40s, it employed almost 30,000 people, and during the war, its efforts focused on the production of wings for Allied aircraft. It was absolutely crucial to the Allied war effort. Side note, this factory is now owned and operated by BMW, so perhaps the Germans were just playing the long game. It's also important to note that the city sits right on the River Thames. During nighttime bombing raids, German pilots would use the reflection of the moon on the surface of the river to navigate their way inland. They'd fly straight over Oxford and onwards to cities in the west like Coventry, Bristol and Bath, all of which took quite a pounding. Surely, if the bombers were flying straight over Oxford, they'd spare a bomb or two. Well, apparently not. There are a fair few theories as to why the city was spared, though there is surprisingly little evidence to support any of them. Perhaps the most common theory is the simplest. Hitler liked Oxford. He really liked Oxford. Perhaps it was the architecture, the history, perhaps it was the prestige. It was possibly something to do with Blenheim Palace, the stunning stately home and birthplace of Winston Churchill that sits just a few miles to the north of the city. This all sounds very feasible, but the amount of hard evidence behind this theory amounts to exactly none. It was pointed out after the war that Germany's oldest university town, Heidelberg, was also spared from damage during the war. Perhaps the British and Germans came to some sort of truce out of respect for history and academia. Again, it's a nice tale, but there isn't much behind it. The theory that I personally find most realistic is born from a memoir written by a man called Albert Speer, a Nazi and an architect by trade, who rose to become the Reich Minister for Armaments and War Production during the Second World War, and became one of the major war criminals to be tried at the Nuremberg Trials in the aftermath of the Second World War. In his memoirs, published shortly after his release from prison in 1966, Speer refers to the post-war plans of Nazi Germany, and their requirement to secure suitably impressive governmental facilities around the new German Empire. Perhaps this was the reason behind Oxford's preservation. People often think that the Radcliffe camera is the centrepiece of the University of Oxford, but had the early 1940s gone slightly differently, it may very well have formed the centrepiece of a new Nazi government in Britain. 
Bear in mind that every building in Ratcliffe Square outdates the mid-20th century by at least a few hundred years, and so it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that in this alternative timeline, the only visible differences in the square might have been the addition of those large red swastika drapes that they dangled over all their buildings. A very scary thought indeed. I invite you now to walk over to the main gates of All Souls College, on the southern face of Radcliffe Square, or to the left of the Radcliffe Camera as you look at it from the old Bodleian Library. All Souls is rather an unusual place. It's the only college of the university that does not offer places to students. It is without doubt the most difficult to get into, as proven by the fact that the college offered what was often referred to as the most difficult exam in the world until only a couple of years ago. It is also host to perhaps the most unusual party that you will ever have heard of. All Souls is rather an odd college. As I say, it's the only of Oxford's 38 colleges that doesn't offer places to students. It's also the quietest college in the city. Every other is a hive of activity, but All Souls looks almost deserted. And that's because it is. There are relatively very few members of All Souls, on account of the fact that it's very difficult to get in. The only way to gain membership to the college is to be offered what's known as a fellowship. For the record, fellowships are typically given out to individuals who have done a particular service to a college, whether that be to a long-serving or highly regarded academic or researcher, or perhaps in return for a financial donation. There are a number of fellowships on offer at All Souls, but certainly the most well-known, and the only one that is open to application, is known as the Research Fellowship. To apply for the Research Fellowship, you must be a current or recently graduated postgraduate student at one of the other colleges at the University of Oxford. Around 80 applicants, the very best students from around the university, are invited to All Souls each year to sit a series of entrance exams. The applicants gather at the college for the last weekend in September to sit four three-hour papers. The first two are specialist papers and relate specifically to each applicant's field of study. The final two are general papers, where candidates have a selection of questions to choose from. Past examples of these papers are actually available on the All Souls website and they make for some really interesting reading. There are a huge selection of questions for the applicants to choose from, and some of them are quite unusual. My favourite comes from the 2015 paper. The question was, and I would suggest that parents cover their children's ears about now, does the moral character of a sex orgy change when the participants are wearing Nazi uniforms? You have three hours. Good luck. Until 2012, one of the general papers was swapped out in favour of an entirely different exam. Often referred to as the most difficult exam in the world, applicants would sit down at their desks, upon which a small envelope would be waiting. When the exam began, applicants would open up their envelopes to find a small piece of paper, with one single word written on it. They'd then have three hours to write an essay on that one single word. All Souls have always been very secretive about this exam, but a few of the words have been shared by past applicants. Those examples include water, error, bias, and honesty. I am aware of a good story about this exam, though I must admit that I don't know for sure that it's true. Once upon a time, an applicant opened their envelope to find the word bravery written inside. They simply wrote down one word, this, before leaving the exam hall. I've no idea whether their one-word response to the one-word exam was accepted, but I do love the creativity. Of the 80 or so applicants each year, 
just one or two will be offered fellowships at the college. You may well be wondering why any person would want to become a member of this most prestigious of institutions. Well, fellows are entitled to a pretty impressive list of benefits. Firstly, they receive a monthly stipend of £1,438, fourteen thirty-eight being the year the college was founded. Secondly, they're given accommodation within the magnificent grounds of the college for the duration of their tenure. A big bonus for fellows is that they have access to unlimited funding for their research. This comes from the college's healthy endowment, currently sitting at about £430 million, making it the third wealthiest college at the University of Oxford. Another huge perk of Fellows of All Souls College involves the luscious green grass that you can see in and around just about every one of the city's colleges. As you may know, students and visitors are absolutely not permitted to walk on the grass. That privilege is reserved for Fellows, who are permitted to walk across the grass of their own college, though All Souls Fellows have the unique privilege of being able to walk on any grass in the city. As you peer through the black iron gates of the college and onto the beautifully maintained front lawn, I will gladly bet you £10 that you do not see a person walking or standing on it. If you do, congratulations. You've just had a rare sighting of an All Souls Fellow. Perhaps the most exclusive right of an All Souls Fellow is their invitation to attend a very special party that is hosted at the college. Bizarrely, only once every hundred years, on the 14th of January of the second year of each new century the last occurrence having been in 2001. The party is known as the Mallard Hunt, and it dates back all the way to 1401, a few decades before the college was actually founded as All Souls. Back then, foundations for a hall were being laid where the college library now sits, and while clearing the ground, the builders came across an old water well, which had been sealed for a very long time. As the builders unsealed the well, out of it flew a Mallard duck, those present were so astonished to see that this duck had survived in this well for so many years that they thought it must have been sent by God. The history of the party goes a little hazy after that, but to this day, the fellows of the college celebrate the appearance of this holy duck with an enormous feast. After plenty of food and copious amounts of alcohol, the fellows, all dressed in their formal gowns, parade around the college searching for this imaginary duck. It is, of course, dark by this point, so they carry with them flaming torches as they sing the famous Mallard song. After many hours of searching and drinking, the fellows congregate at the college's north gate, looking onto Radcliffe Square, where many thousands of Oxford's residents gather to watch. Silence falls on the crowd, and the warden of the college, essentially the principal, comes to stand before them. From behind his back, he pulls a spear with a recently deceased bloody Mallard duck impaled on the top of it. He launches it into the air and announces, Huzzah! We found him! And the crowd erupts into cheer and applause. Following that, the fellows turn on their heels and parade back into the college, and the party is over, for another century at least. On now to the University Church of St Mary the Virgin, which occupies the southern face of Radcliffe Square. We spoke a bit about the Radcam often being considered the centre of the university by visitors to the city. But if any landmark in Oxford truly could be considered the centre, it would surely be St Mary's Church. The church has actually been here quite a while longer than the university. The earliest record of a church at this location comes from a survey conducted in 1086, so it's likely to have been constructed shortly after the Norman invasion and the arrival of Robert Doyle in Oxford. 
Over the succeeding centuries, it was regularly extended and rebuilt, most notably in 1320, when the two-storey extension was added to the north side of the chancel. Side note, this area is now home to a lovely little cafe called the Vaults and Gardens, and I would highly recommend it. The oldest part of the church is the Tower, which dates from around 1270, and has been referred to by numerous church historians as home to the most beautiful spire in England. The majority of the rest of the church was extended in the 14th and 15th centuries, and the original stonework was restored by Sir Giles Gilbert Scott in the 1850s. The church is free to enter, though there is a fee of £4 if you'd like to climb the 127 steps to the top of the tower. It's a wonderful exercise, and there is a fabulous view of the city from the top. As you wander around the inside of the church, you can see lots of interesting artefacts, such as the tomb of Adam de Brome, rector of the church in the 1320s, the remnants of some 15th century stained glass in the east window, and Cramner's pillar, a stone pillar with a large chunk that was removed in order to support a platform on which Archbishop Thomas Cramner stood during his own heresy trial in 1555. We'll be hearing a bit more about Mr Cramner and his experience in the church in a short while. So, the church is clearly very historic, rather beautiful, and as I'm sure you can guess, it has been of great importance to the residents of Oxford over much of the past millennium. But what does it have to do with the university? Well, quite a lot, actually. In the early days of the university, the church was adopted as a facility for lectures, ceremonies and congregations, which were the formal meetings of senior members of the university. In the early 14th century, the modest collection of the university's books warranted a library. St Mary's was chosen, which was the main reason for the construction of that two-storey extension back in 1320. The university library remained there until 1488, when the Duke Humphreys Library, above the Divinity School, took over the role. The graduation ceremonies of the university were hosted at the church for centuries, until 1667, when the Sheldonian Theatre was completed. Legend has it that students liked to get rather rowdy during their graduation ceremonies back in those days, and the chancellors of the university deemed it unfit for such ceremonies to take place on such holy ground. Perhaps the most famous event in the church's history took place in 1555, when it hosted the trial of three men, now known as the Oxford Martyrs. These men, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer and Bishops Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, were prominent Tudor Protestants, or Evangelicals as they were known at the time, who had come to varying degrees of power and influence over the course of the English Reformation, that dark and profoundly consequential period that you may remember from the previous episode, which was one of the results of Henry VIII's inability to keep his pants on. It's a fascinating story, with betrayals, false promises and executions, and I'll be telling it to you at the end of the tour, when you'll find yourself standing at the very point where those three men were, spoiler alert, burned alive at the stake. As you leave the church and head back into Radcliffe Square, turn left and head towards St Mary's Passage, the alley dividing the western face of the church with Brasenose College. As you walk down that alleyway, you'll notice two doors. The one on your left, a part of the church, has glass windows that peer into a modern office, and on the right, facing it, is an older, more ornate wooden door. The reason you're standing here is because of a man called Clive Staples Lewis, better known as C.S. Lewis, who was a student at University College and later a fellow of Magdalen College, both of which are just a short walk down the high street. We'll be talking more about him in a later episode, as his time in Oxford was very much intertwined with another popular author, his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien. But for now, let me tell you that Mr Lewis was, for most of his adult life, an Anglican, 
and as such prayed and attended Mass at the University Church of St Mary several times a week during the 29 years that he spent as a fellow. The door on the left, with the glass windows peering into the office, was, until 1982, an entrance to the church that was reserved for the fellows of the university. We can therefore say with confidence that Mr Lewis walked up and down St Mary's Passage countless times during his tenure as a fellow, and with that being the case, any fans of his Narnia novels may well recognise a few suspiciously familiar features on the old wooden door facing the church. First, I'm sure you'll notice the lion-like face carved into the centre, and secondly, the two fawn-like creatures decorating the eaves on either side. Could they have been the inspiration for Aslan and Mr Tumnus? Perhaps. Coincidence? Very possibly. As you look at those engravings, think back to Lewis's books, or perhaps the films, if you've seen them, and try to recall the first thing that the children see as they climb through the wardrobe and tumble out into the snows of Narnia. Do you remember? It was a tall, black lamppost. Identical, in fact, to the one on your right, back towards Radcliffe Square. If you happen to be listening to this audio tour after dark, you'll be able to see a very interesting distinguishing feature of the lamppost. There are a great many identical lampposts in Oxford, and until the late 19th century, all of these lampposts were powered by oil and burned a bright white light. When they were upgraded to gas power, the light was changed to this warmer yellow, which all of the city's lampposts feature today. All of the lampposts, that is, except this one, which, as a vague historical anomaly, still burns a white light, just like the lamppost that the children see in Narnia. This brings us to the end of chapter four. I ask you now to cross the high street and head over to Magpie Lane, one of the oldest streets in Oxford. We'll be covering quite a lot in the next chapter, including Inspector Morse, Jewish funerals, Michelin star meals, and university exams. You may also be wondering where all of the university's money comes from. Well, you'll find out next time. See you there.